Matthew thirteen thirty one through thirty three and forty four through forty six. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, my name is Matt. Oh, did I? Am I good? Good. All right. Always that difficult moment here. If you've never stood up here, there's that awkward spot right in between the speakers where you don't hear the echo. And so you always wonder if it's actually on or not. But my name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at Advent, as they already said, and it's a blessing to be here with you tonight and a blessing to get to know many more of you yesterday at our little Get to Know You event and opportunity to stick around and have some more in-depth conversations about what God's doing is what, you know, are some of our expectations as well as some of our challenges challenges in the midst of that. And so, blessed tonight to get to come and share again with you guys. I know I was joking with a few people beforehand that last time I came, they gave me one verse to preach on. And then originally when I signed up, it was the rest of Matthew 13, which included six parables. And so I was like, well, maybe next time we could balance it out a little bit more. And as we went on and and talked a little bit more, um, we cut it down a little bit. So I'm only going to do four of the parables, which creates a little bit of a disjoint. um, But we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But we recognize this incredible journey of Jesus and how for so long his ministry becomes popular. But he begins to defy expectations. And people begin to wonder what type of kingdom is Jesus really bringing? And one of my favorite passages in scripture is John chapter 6, where people decide they're going to take Jesus and make him king by force. And so they want him to become king. They think this is the way it's supposed to happen. And of course, Jesus, that's not the kingdom that he is bringing. And so as these expectations get defied, things begin to reach ahead in Matthew chapter 12. And so there's no denying the way Jesus teaches, the authority that he seems to possess, and the power that he has. And so the only other explanation, if he's not the Messiah, is his power comes from somewhere else. This teaching, this authority has to come from somewhere else. And so the only other thing, it has to be demonic. It has to be Beelzebub. And so this incredible moment comes, and Jesus withdraws, and then he begins to teach in parables. He begins to talk about the kingdom of God in a new way, using this aspect of parables. And Josh did such a great job of talking about the purpose of parables, that so often we picture them as these great little sermon illustrations, right? And they are, in so many ways, so clear, so easy to understand the gospel in the eyes of a child. But yet, 
Something more than hearing is required in order to grasp. Something more than just being able to see is required. And Jesus begins to challenge the expectations of the kingdom. He tells the parable of the sower. And all of a sudden, the kingdom doesn't look the way everybody thought it was going to. Everybody assumes the king and the Messiah is going to show up and the kingdom is going to take over everything. People are going to respond, right? Because who's going to reject the king? But yet Jesus tells this parable about three of the soils rejecting the crop and not building roots. And then Jesus will go on and he'll tell what we now call the parable of the weeds. What most of us grew up is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that Satan is so powerful, he's able to sow tares into the kingdom. And for some strange reason, they're growing together for this season. And Jesus will explain to his disciples why this is the case. And into the midst of this, we can almost picture the disciples wondering, have we backed the wrong team? If the king isn't going to bring this massive kingdom now, if it's not going to take over, if so many people can reject it, if Satan can sow lies in the midst of it and nothing has happened, nothing is held to account until the end, have we backed the wrong team? Is this really coming? And then the parables begin to shift. And so what today we're going to look at as two sets of two, just for the sake of time. We're going to look at the great parable of the mustard seed. We're going to look at the parable of the leaven. And what we're going to see is that the kingdom is veiled. The kingdom appears hidden. It is not the kingdom in the eyes and the ways that everybody is expecting it to come. But just because it doesn't look the way we expect it to come, just because it starts small, doesn't mean it is not on an unstoppable trajectory. And so what we want to hear today in the midst of that is that call to not give up. Because when we look in our world, anybody else been watching the news and think the world's kind of falling apart? It's like, what's new about that, right? It's been falling apart forever. And we recognize, and it's so easy to doubt. It's so easy to say, God, where are you at work here? And eyes of faith are required to see the expansion of the kingdom. We can picture the original disciples huddled and wondering, what is going to happen? And Jesus declares the kingdom, it's going to start small, but it's going to expand in ways you can never have imagined. So we'll see first the veiled nature of the kingdom. And then Jesus is going to turn and tell two more parables about the value of the kingdom. And that once the veil has been lifted, once you see what the kingdom really is, you will pay anything to get it, and it is absolutely worth it. The value of the kingdom is immeasurable, and it is worth giving your life for. And so we want to capture the heart of these parables this morning. So we're going to dig into them and just look at this idea of the veiled kingdom of immeasurable value. And so we're going to start in verse 31. Jesus, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Again, the common language of agriculture, something that everybody can relate to, everybody can understand. But why mustard? 
Now, I don't know, is there anybody else out here who likes mustard? So my family, you know, isn't as big into mustard as I am, but we found this little shop in Littleton, New Hampshire, which is where my, my wife's dad's family is from, and they have, like, all kinds of mustard. So we can't currently in our, you know, fridge, we have blueberry mustard. We have a champagne and a honey garlic mustard. And in the basement, we have an entire shelf of mustard in jars that once there's room, we're going to open up. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just excited to try all of these different things. So we get mustard is all about flavor, right? But in the ancient world, it has a couple other uses. It's thought to have medicinal value. And it's also used for oil to, you know, produce all those oils and other types of flavors as well as types of light. Okay? But Jesus' point in all the midst of this is, of course, we recognize that we've heard this story so many times before. What? Mustard seeds. They're really, really small, right? If you grew up in my age, there used to have these commercials, and there would be this guy in a limo, and he would say, pardon me, but do you happen to have any gray poupon? Right? This is back in the day. And it's this, this mustard, and it's got the seeds in it. You can see the seeds, and they are small, Right? And so Jesus' point is the kingdom is going to start small, but it is going to blossom and bloom in ways you cannot imagine. So Jesus continues on in verse 32. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make its nests in its branches. So we know and we recognize what? A mustard seed. It's a whole lot smaller than a barley seed or a wheat seed. And yet the mustard plant grows usually about on average eight feet, right? That's a pretty good sized bush. But the ancient world, some people would record mustard bushes that would reach 15 feet. One ancient writer talks about the fact that you could ride a horse underneath this mustard plant, right? Now at that point, that's like, that's a really big bush, Right? Like, that, that's not a bush anymore. That's really a kind of a tree here, right? That there's something so small is so much astronomically bigger than anything else. And hidden in the midst of this is this other aspect of it. It's proverbial in Jewish culture. They would talk about what? A drop of blood could make you unclean if it was bigger than a mustard seed. When you wanted to pass your animal for inspection, it needed to have no blemishes. Bigger than what? A grain of a mustard seed. Right? It's this proverbial aspect that Jesus latches onto. And then he talks about birds coming and nesting in it, right? Because it's not just a little bush, right? Because birds, they're smart. They don't build where things are going to mess with them. They build up high. And there's this beautiful illusion in the text going all the way back to the book of Ezekiel. One of the pictures in Ezekiel of the kingdom coming is like it's going to be a mighty cedar. I want to just read this here for us. Ezekiel 17, verses 23 and 24. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And of all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the tree, the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And so Israel expects what? A mighty cedar. And what does Jesus declare? All of those prophecies are going to be true, but it's not coming in the package that you expect. All of these things will come to pass. They're just not going to look exactly the way you thought they would. 
And we don't expect the Messiah to come, what, at Christmas. We don't expect the King of Kings to come and be laid in a feeding trough. Of all the places in the world, Nazareth, love Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, what is up with this approach? And Jesus declares the kingdom and the king are small. They seem insignificant. The world is going to reject them. But take heart. There is far more than you can anticipate. And we think about the disciples, right? This group of ragtag has-beens that Jesus assembles. And they're supposed to change the world. And think about the encouragement that comes in these parables that you're the small mustard seed, but through you, I will choose to build my kingdom. Through you, my power will be made perfect. And we think about the power of small things. can't help but think about the story of a red paperclip. Perhaps you've sto- heard the story of James McDonald, a Canadian, and he wanted a house. However, he didn't have any money. All he had was one red paperclip. And there's this great game out there, especially popular among college students, called Bigger and Better. All right? So I know routinely we live near about a block from Aurora University. And so usually every year or two we will get a group of college students during some form of orientation playing the game of Bigger and Better, in which they have something they have been given, and they have to go out and trade it for something bigger or something better. And I remember at one point, you know, them showing up with a coffee mug. And I'm like, well, I happen to have this couch. (laughs) And so literally, these two football guys come in, and they're hauling this couch. I don't know that they, I think they they, they had decided that nobody was going to beat the couch. And so they were just going to go back right then. You know, they they were declaring it over. You know, I don't, you know, they, they just took the couch back. And, you know, I'm guessing they probably won. And certainly in record time. But we recognize this whole idea of bigger or better. But what he does is he makes 14 trades over the course of a year, and he starts with a red paperclip, and he ends up with a two-bedroom townhouse, farmhouse in Saskatchewan. And my favorite trade in the midst of that, two back, he trades for a Kiss Vintage Snow Globe and an Afternoon with Alice Cooper. Now, if you don't know those individuals, that's not an endorsement of their music, just a recognition that as a, you know, a rebellious teenager, I went through a metal phase, and so, you know, there's still some, some vintage, you know, appreciation for some of those things. But he trades that for a role in a movie, which he eventually trades to somebody else for a, this farmhouse. And we recognize that, what, something small can accomplish something amazing if the right hands and the right circumstances come about. And so the promise is the kingdom, all these things the disciples have grown up hearing. Psalm 78, that one day the kingdom will stretch from sea to sea. It will happen. It's just not going to look and appear on the timetable that you are expecting. And we are so blessed to live on the other side of Revelation. The promise of Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That it's so easy, what, to live in the parable of the sower, to try and follow after Jesus, to try and scatter his seed and just keep sowing and become disheartened. 
And so we need the encouragement to recognize that the kingdom is going to appear small. The kingdom is going to appear veiled. But don't give up. There are going to be moments and times where it feels like the enemy is winning, where it feels like giving your life to Christ doesn't make a difference. And Jesus says, don't give up. Don't give in. It will bear fruit. Keep going. Keep going. Keep planting. Trust that this is going to happen even when you cannot see it. And sometimes we need to recognize that smallness of faith and the kingdom power that comes to us. What do we think about the thief on the cross? One request. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There are some of us here who probably need to hear the encouragement that the kingdom is at work in you, that God will see you through. Just don't give up. There are those moments when we battle addiction, those moments when we battle despair, those moments where we just don't think God's ever going to be able to change me. Maybe he can change somebody else, but I've just failed too many times. The kingdom is veiled. It is at work within you. If you do not give up and persevere to the end, there is a great and glorious kingdom, and you will be a part of it. You will be transformed in the midst of it. So do not give up. And so Jesus then proceeds to tell another parable in verse 33. A parable, again, showing the veiled nature of the kingdom, but how influential and powerful it is that it will, in fact, be unstoppable. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. In the ancient world, what are the two things almost everybody does? Either you're a guy and you work in the fields or you're a woman and you bake bread. Why? Because that's how you live, right? These are the common images for the average person. This is what it's going to take. And so oftentimes when we think about leaven, we think yeast, right? Yeast, it's a powerful and wonderful thing. But leaven's a little bit different. So I know we had the opportunity to have somebody make for us Amish friendship bread. Anybody here ever had Amish friendship bread? And so basically what it is is you get this bag of starter, and that's a much similar picture of leaven. Because what you would do is you didn't have your little yeast packet that you have to keep at the right temperature in your fridge, and then you pour in and you make your bread when the time came. You took a little bit of what? Yesterday's starter. Why? Because you're making bread every single day. In the ancient world, you don't have preservatives. You don't have a grocery store. Everybody's doing it. You take that little bit of leaven, and you bring it out, and you take what those started yesterday, and you use it to create what's today. And tucked in 1 Corinthians 5, there's this incredible image of the leaven. So usually when we think about the story of the Exodus, right, they had to have unleavened bread. Why? Because they're in a hurry. they got to get out of Egypt. It's time to go. We don't have time for the bread to raise. But Paul makes this other amazing illustration. He says that you can't take this piece of what was old and use it to start something that's new. Why? You can't start your journey to the promised land with what? What used to come from Egypt. You can't take the starter from Egypt and use it to launch something that is new. And it opens up this profound image when we see it in its culture. That what did Jewish women do as one of the gifts to their daughters? Here's your little bag of starter. 
right? It didn't come in a Ziploc bag, right, in the ancient world. They don't have that. But you would get what? Part of last bread from your household, that starter, that leaven, to make the first batch in your new thing, mother to daughter. That's how it passed. That's how it worked. And then we begin to see the power of this image in Scripture, its influence. Luke 12, what does Jesus warn us? Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's like leaven. It will influence everything. Paul uses that same image in Galatians 5, 9 to talk about the danger of immorality in the church. Don't let it spread like leaven. And then Jesus reveals to us this image, what? Three full measures. All right? I have to look at the footnote, right? That's about an ephah of flour. That's like close to 50 pounds of flour. That's a whole lot of flour, right? Like leaven. Wow, that's a whole lot of bread. When we think about influence, when we think about power, that something this small, yesterday's leftovers, what? They can produce enough bread for a mammoth-sized offering. This is the image drawn out of Genesis 18 when the angels come to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah goes and makes, what? Three full measures worth of bread. The story of Gideon. Gideon needs to make an offering to the angel of the Lord. What does he use? Three full measures of flour. It's a profound image in the scriptures representing a powerful offering. And so we see the leaven, what? It influences, it creates profound transformation in a good way. And so we recognize that the kingdom of God is veiled. And we have to take heart. Because there's those moments where people are going to look at you like you're nuts. Right? Like, in reality, the fact that we are here choosing to do this instead of having Super Bowl parties at the moment, there are people who would look at us like we're absolutely crazy. Like, why on earth would you choose to do this instead? Why? Because they can't see the kingdom. They can't see the value. They don't see... Why? Because it is veiled. It has not come in its fullness. It has not come in its power. So take heart. Don't be discouraged when people look at you like you're crazy. When people look at you like your values are completely upside down. To recognize how different our calling is. Why? Because we have seen what others have not been able to see yet. But once they do, it will change everything. Once they see the power of the kingdom, it transforms and changes everything. Why? Because Jesus is in it for the long game. Right? So one of the fun things you'll learn about our family is we love strategy games. All right? So I have a friend growing up, and he got us hooked on strategy games. So he sent us this giant 50th anniversary wooden set of Risk. That literally, when you put it together, is the size of our dining room table. Like, literally, you can't put it sideways on the table. You have to put it long ways in order to play on there. Right? And then he gave us one of the gateway drug games, Catan. Like, we'd never heard of Catan before. And we started playing it. And, you know, then you get into other games and other games. And games that take, like, eight or nine hours. And, you know, not ordinary people just look at you like you're a little crazy. But one of my favorite things about Catan is it has all these expansions and different scenarios and things you can play. And so usually our favorite for our family is is Cities and Nights. And so my wife will be in there. And so normally 
Catan, if you don't know it, you play to victory points. That's how you win. Ten victory points, you win the game. You have to build things, you win the game. Cities and Knights, it's a little bit longer. You play to 13 victory points. And my wife is always like, it takes too long. We need to be done. Right? And so she's like, let's just play it till 10 victory points. And I'm always like, we can't do that. But here's why. And so part of it is is my family doesn't like to play Catan with me because, like, they think I cheat. Because I'm just, like, really, really lucky. Like, you know, whatever it is, like, I, whatever numbers I land on just happen to get rolled. And, and, like, I swear I didn't do anything to the dice. I'm not even, like, praying that I win. Like, you know, there's nothing in there, right? But part of the, the, the idea is, for me, is the strategy in some of the longer versions of Catan is you can't get too far out in front. Because then everybody goes after you. You have to stay just one step back until the last minute. And then around 10, 11, 12 victory points, the game's going to tip. And if you set yourself up, you jump over whoever's in front of you and win. Because it's all about that last minute success there. That we recognize, what about the kingdom? It doesn't appear like it's winning. I was reminded the other day about a a baptism we did in, in our church a few years ago. There was this man, and he grew up as a Jew. And he came to Christ reading the Old Testament. And then he went on to pray every day for 33 years for his mom to come to Christ. And she finally did. And we got to baptize her. And before she died, and amen, yeah, it was amazing. And then there's those moments where you're like, man, I can't fathom praying for something for every day for 33 years. Right? To recognize that there is this incredible value in knowing what? The kingdom is the long game. That it doesn't always feel like it's working. But we have to believe it is. Why? Because otherwise, what do we do? We give up. We become disheartened. We buy into the lies and the complacency of the world. And so we want to hear that message tonight that Jesus wants his disciples to grasp. Don't give up the kingdom. It is veiled. One day it will come in consummation and it is going to do and blow your mind in what it can accomplish here and now. But it's not always going to be obvious. It's not always going to lead from the front. And then Jesus is going to go on and he's going to take the disciples back to unpack the parable of the wheat and the tares. And then we're going to fast forward to this other set of parables. But what we see is this incredible interplay in Matthew 13 about the kingdom and about the value of the kingdom and how the kingdom is veiled and it's hidden and it doesn't look the way you think it's going to look. And it's going to subvert your values. But don't give up. And then he moves from talking about the veiled nature of the kingdom, still keeping that in mind, but talking to the value of the kingdom and how it is worth more than you can possibly imagine. It is worth everything. And so we come to two other very familiar parables, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Now, again, some of those things that are a little bit strange to us in our culture. If we have some extra money, not that many of us do, right? But if you did, you'd go and put it in the bank. And now you can find an online bank that actually pays a little bit of interest, right? But, you know, what would normally people be doing? Like, well, we're going to invest our money. We're going to maybe buy some crypto if we're a little, you know, more advantageous, a little more risky out there. But in the ancient world, banks were not for average people, right? And banks were a risky investment especially in Israel. Why? Because Israel was a very war-torn nation. Why? Because when you look at where Israel's on a map, if you want to get from over here to over here, where do you got to go? You got to go through Israel, right? Empires. You want to conquer that other part of the world? Guess who's going to get trampled in the way? Israel. Well, we're going this way. We're going to trample on Israel, right? Josephus put it this way, talking about these types of, of things of where people would put it. He says, the gold and the silver and the rest of that most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners treasured up underground was done to withstand, what, the fortunes of war. So if you had something valuable, you'd go and you'd bury it so that nobody would come and steal it from you. Our son just recently went to Albania and, you know, he's supposed to take with him enough euros to pay his rent for six months in cash. I'm like, that's a lot of money. Now, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, like relatively speaking here. So it's like, guess what you're going to get? We're going to get you a money belt, right? Because you're going to wear this underneath your clothing so that nobody's going to be able to take it from you, right? You're going to hide your stuff. The parable of the talents. What does the man do? Oh, I'm going to conserve what I have. I'm going to bury it in the ground, right? It's a logical thing to do to prevent somebody else from coming along and taking it. Now, the other important thing we want to recognize here is the word that's used to describe this treasure is not just ordinary treasure. This is to describe a storehouse of treasures. It's the word that's used in the great passage in Hebrews 11 to talk about Moses, who by faith, what? Abandoned the treasuries of Egypt to follow after Yahweh, to go by his people. This is a huge treasure. Now, we don't know why the man is walking in the field. We don't know. Maybe he's plowing. Maybe he's working there. We don't know, right? And then there's that other really awkward thing. And so if you're a little bit like me, there's sometimes Jesus tells stories and you're like, I think you should have picked a different story. Because there's those stories that are just a little awkward. And so it almost feels like this story just doesn't quite feel right. Because I don't know about you, but see, I was brought up, and if you found something and it wasn't yours, you weren't supposed to take it, right? I mean, I had that, that concrete memory, being at my grandma's. And so there used to be these things called department stores. And there was this great store called Woolsworth's. And, you know, my grandma took me to Woolsworth's, and we, you know, were shopping. I don't remember for what. And lo and behold, on the ground, I found a money clip with $35 on it. Now, there also happened to be back during the 80s this wonderful thing called Toys R Us. Now, this is a toy store for you young people that was huge. They had anything you could possibly want to buy. And for $35, you could not buy anything in that store. But you could buy anything a early elementary school boy would want. So this is a small fortune. My grandma's like, and I'm like, oh, great. Let's go to Toys R Us. And she's like, you can't keep that. You got to go turn this in, right? That's the way most of us were brought up. And so there's this tension here. So there's a few things culturally that just help us to, to get beyond that that aren't really related to this. But if you're anything like me, you get hung up sometimes. And so I just want to dispel those things real quick. So the first is, according to rabbinic law, 
It basically is called finders keepers. Like if you find treasure, if you find fruit, if you find it, it belongs to the finder. Then we also need to recognize something else. The treasure doesn't seem to belong to the guy who owns the field. Why? Well, because if he was going to sell the field, he'd probably go dig it up first, right? I don't know about you, but I'm not going to sell a field with a really valuable treasure in it if I know it's there. So this is, you know, seems to be somebody else's money there. And then we have the fact that what does the guy do? He buries the treasure. He could have just taken it in the first place. So a few things just to help us recognize Jesus isn't being like completely off base here, right? To, to help us get through that. All right. Notice something else important in the parable. The man, what? He's not looking for the treasure. He comes and he finds it. And again, that link back to the parable of the sower, that sometimes we think we know, but we don't know. We don't know the heart of somebody else, right? We have those different types of stories, right? There are those of you here who came to Christ and you were searching. You were looking. You were found something is missing in your life and you were trying to get the answer to it. And there were other people and your story is, I was going through my life and then bam, Jesus. Like, I didn't know I needed him. I didn't know I had a problem. I I didn't realize there was anything going on in my life. And then all of a sudden it just comes over you and you recognize you're standing in the sight of God. And so here, this man, he does not know that there is this treasure out there. But when he discovers it, what? It changes everything in his life. It is all about the cost. And what does it tell us here? Joy. Then he goes in his joy and sells everything he has. If I'm honest, how joyful am I going to be if I have to sell everything I own? Right? Like, I, I have, you know, like, I don't have a lot of really valuable things, but like, there's some stuff I really like. There's some things that I have that are valuable. But what it, it's joy to get rid of. Why? Because this treasure is worth so much more. Everything I have in comparison, I can't help but think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That there is nothing greater once you have glimpsed the value of the kingdom, once the veil has been lifted, it is worth everything to get. And we sacrifice it in joy because it is so much better than we ever could have imagined. And just to make sure we don't miss it, Jesus is going to kick it home with one more parable about the value of the kingdom. Verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so a couple slight differences here. This man is a merchant. He's a dealer in pearls. And in the ancient world, pearls are the, va- are the diamonds, right? 
If you wanted to show off your value as a Roman emperor, what you would do is you'd dissolve pearls in wine and drink them because you were so filthy rich. Right? There's nothing greater than to you know, dissolve something like a pearl. Like to show, I am just so filthy rich, I can just take something of immeasurable value and just drink it. Then what does Jesus do to compare the value? What? Don't cast your what, pearls before swine. For the Jewish mind, is there anything lower than a pig? Like, of all the unclean animals, nothing is worse than a pig, which is what makes the story of the prodigal son so amazing, right? And so what's on the contrary end? The pearl, right? This is the pinnacle of value. And this is a man who deals in pearls. He is a wealthy and successful merchant. And what do we notice here? Unlike our last parable, here the man is looking. He is searching for pearls. He knows what he is looking for. And when he finds it, he rejoices. That again, we see the different stories of our lives, and both of them reflected in Scripture. There are those of us whose journey is one of searching, and those of us whose journey is one of just discovery. But in both of them, the emphasis is on what? It's on the value. This word here, it's the same Greek word that's used to describe what? The perfume that was poured over Jesus' feet to anoint him a year's worth of wages. It's the same word Peter will use to describe our faith as of greater worth than gold. This is a pearl of really, really special value, right? This is not just any pearl. This is a pearl of profound price. And he sacrifices everything he has. Well, again, when we look at it a little closer, literally what it says is he gave all of his many things. Right? That's really bad English. So we don't, we don't say it that way, right, in our translations. But literally he gave all of his many things to strike us with what? Both men gave everything they had. This guy just had a whole lot more to give. Right? The other guy's, you know, probably a tenant farmer, probably walking through... He doesn't have a whole lot. He's going to spend everything he has. This man, he's a dealer in pearls. He has a lot of many things. But when he encounters the kingdom, what does he do? He gives it all away. He recognizes it. He does what the rich young ruler is unwilling to do because of his great wealth. He's willing to lay it aside. Why? Because the value of the kingdom is so much more. And this story becomes all the more prominent because we see other stories about people finding pearls in in ancient Jewish literature. And most of them focus on what? The piety of the person finding it. So one of my favorites is a story about a tailor. And he desperately needs a fish. He has to go buy a fish because he's got to be able to do something, you know, to, to celebrate the Sabbath. And so he goes and he spends an exorbitant fortune on this fish. And guess what's inside the fish's mouth? A pearl. And he never has to work another day in his life. And so this is the type of thing. Why? It's designed to focus on the piety. And what does Jesus do? He takes that common image and he says, no, no, no. It's not about your piety. It's about the cost of the value of the kingdom. And it's about the cost of what it is required in order to attain. And so when we begin to talk about the value of the kingdom, we have to be careful because we don't want to come thinking that we can somehow buy the kingdom, right? Oh, if I just sacrifice everything, I'm in. Is that all it takes? Well, we're reminded, Jesus says what? It's, It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle 
than to enter the kingdom of God. It's not something you can purchase on your own. It's not just enough to merely hear. Your heart must be stirred. You must receive by grace through faith. It's not just saying clean up your act and then you can have the kingdom. It is purchased, what? Through the incredible sacrifice of Christ. It comes to us by faith. It must be chosen and made our own. And so we hear anew the the call of the gospel. So growing up, I always remember my dad telling, you know, stories and things. He was an archaeologist and a religion professor, a teacher of Middle East politics and many other things, led 26 trips over to the Middle East. So I had a, you know, a very interesting upbringing. But he used to tell a story and it's become one of my favorites to talk about faith. Because we have this problem in English. You see, faith isn't a verb. It's a noun. We have faith in something, right? So we often do what? We substitute the idea of believe, right? And the whole point of the parables is what? Believing isn't enough. It's not just enough to hear it. There is something more required. And so we picture it this way. Imagine you pull up with your family to the Grand Canyon. And you're enjoying the views. And they're awesome and they're amazing. And then this guy pulls up in this really crazy monster truck pickup. And everybody's just kind of watching him. They're like, I don't know what's going on here, but we're just watching him. And then he goes into the back, and he pulls out this giant crossbow. And he shoots a bolt all the way across the Grand Canyon. And he pulls it taunt. And everybody's just watching. And then he goes back into the back of his pickup truck, And he comes out with this beam, and all of a sudden the lights go on in everybody's eyes. He's a tightrope walker. He's going to try and tightrope a walk across the Grand Canyon. And so all the parents with the little kids are like, we're out of here, right? And all the teenagers bust out their iPhones, and they're like, we are going to go viral, right? This is going to be amazing. And so the man goes up, and he riles up the crowd. How many of you think I can go across? And the people are like, die and other people are like go for it this will be awesome and he goes out and he comes back and the crowd's mind is absolutely blown right and says how many of you think i can do it again we just saw you do it you can totally do it again you can still die but it would be cool go for it and he goes out and he comes back and then he goes back around to the back end of that monster truck and he pulls out a wheelbarrow and he says how many of you think i can push the wheelbarrow across and this time he's already won the crowd over and they're just cheering you can do it and he pushes the wheelbarrow out and he brings it back and everybody's mind is blown and he says how many of you think i can push a person across in the wheelbarrow and they're like you can totally do it go for it and he says great who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow <laughs> right that is the moment where belief becomes faith. That is the moment of trust. That is the moment of, do I really believe the kingdom? Do I really trust Jesus? That on the great day of judgment, when the book is opened, and all I have is, I got nothing except Jesus. Like, that's, that's all I have. I believe that what he did on the cross is enough to save me. That that is the message of the kingdom. 
and that it is a veiled and it is a hard message at times. There are those moments where it just it doesn't make sense, but yet we pursue on and we trust and we believe and we find more than we could have ever imagined. That he does for us what we could not do for ourselves in a profound and wonderful and amazing way. And so today, we hear the incredible stories that speak to us just like they did so many thousands of years ago. We hear that though the kingdom appears to be veiled, when our eyes are opened and we can see it, oh, we don't give up. Because we know that it is branching out. It is moving. God is moving in unstoppable and profound ways. Even when we stand over the death and the tombs and the graves of people that we love, who have trusted in Jesus, we assert that death is not the end. The grave is not the end. There is hope beyond this life. The kingdom is working. That there are those moments where life gets hard where we look in the mirror and we just don't know if it's worth it and we hear anew and afresh the words of jesus it absolutely is worth it i gave everything for you pick up your cross follow after me die to yourself day after day that we need that encouragement in this world don't give up. It is absolutely and totally worth it. And so we are blessed now to have that opportunity to remember what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to invite those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward.